From Yahoo Finance, this is Electionomics. I'm Rick Newman. And I'm Alexis Christophorus. The 2020 presidential race will be decided by voters in about a dozen competitive or so-called swing states, where Joe Biden and Donald Trump will focus their efforts to win the 270 electoral votes needed to reach the White House. Joining us to talk about this is Stephanie Miller, Managing Director of Fiscal Note Markets. Stephanie, good to have you here on the Electionomics podcast. So look, generally speaking, there are about six swing states or battleground states, Florida, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Arizona. But you are adding a few more this year, including Ohio, Iowa, and Minnesota. Tell us why. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, So the states that we all watch tend to be these Rust Belt middle states, and those are still on everyone's must-watch lists, including Ohio. A lot of folks um, know that Ohio is hard for Democrats to get, but I think a lot of folks are aware that Joe Biden is spending a tremendous amount of money there to try to win the state. But a place like Iowa is really interesting, too, because historically these Midwestern states, and I'm from Nebraska, so I have a lot of love for the Midwest, but these Midwestern states are very red. It's very hard for a Democrat to win them. But in this case, Iowa has a very, very close Senate race. And so very interestingly, pollsters I've spoken to are thinking there's a real viable scenario where the Senate race down ballot actually helps Biden and pulls pulls him into a victory. So that's very unusual. Arizona is another state where that could happen, where the Senate, a close Senate race could actually help determine who wins the White House. Um, So it's very unusual dynamics in an already really unusual election cycle. Steph, a lot of the analysis I've been looking at is really focusing on just six swing states, and you're taking a broader view, which is why I wanted you to come on and talk about your analysis. Um, You've got it up to 10 or even 12, uh, you know, in in, in some of the scenarios you look at. Why are you taking that broader view? Do you, you, like, do you know something the rest of us don't? (laughs) So... One of the questions I get all the time from investors is why the heck should we be paying attention to any polls right now when they were so wrong in 2016? And there's been a lot of pollsters defending the polls since then saying, well, in 2016, we actually got it right. The popular vote did give Clinton the win, but the Electoral College is is what's trickier to predict. And so I'm obsessed with the Electoral College, as I think a lot of people are. And so It's true, I'm watching 10 states, and then you can add in two other districts because Nebraska, where I'm from, again, I love all the Nebraska plugs I get to do. There's a district that has one electoral college vote that in a red state could actually go blue, and in Maine is the opposite. In Maine, there's one electoral college vote, the second district of Maine, that could go red while the rest of the state goes blue. And so what I really wanted to understand is, based on the current trends of these swing states, you know, not the popular vote, but how does the electoral college play out? Um, And when taking the variance in all these states into account, there's a lot of scenarios that have either tied elections between the two candidates or Trump or Biden winning by just like two or three electoral college votes. So that is shows that I think every single one of these really, really matters and is really important to try to get right. So as you're you're doing this analysis, could you highlight what a couple of surprises might be? So, for example, um, Florida could go either way. I I don't think we'd be surprised either way in that state. Uh, You know, you said Ohio now used to be a bellwether, but really it kind of leans Republican. But 
you've got a couple others on here that would be surprising if they played out the way you're kind of gaming it. What are a couple of those? Yeah. And I will say I, and, and a lot of my scenarios that I've looked at, I have Florida going red uh, to Donald Trump because I don't get, I, it's not my understanding that Biden's campaign is investing as much money and time into Florida because it is very difficult for Democrats to win Florida. Um, and so instead, my understanding is that Democrats are really invested in these Rust Belt states where Trump won these states for the most part. So I'm thinking Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, even where there's a big manufacturing base that feels like the people, a lot of these people feel like they've been forgotten. They feel like global trade has been on at, the, at their expense and that Trump really understands them. And a lot of the messages that Trump has has espoused during his campaign in 2016, has pushed during his presidency for the last three and a half years, have been to attract these voters. But interestingly, they're all very aligned with a lot of long-standing democratic principles, such as protecting labor, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's they're very also gettable for Biden. So I'd say, you know, one of the more surprising states that I could see going either way um, would probably be Wisconsin. And a lot of people are can, you know, are critical of the Clinton campaign for not focusing on Wisconsin. So I think Biden knows that he needs to spend a bunch of time there. Um, Pennsylvania is another state that I can see going red or blue based off of recent polling that really shows it's tightening between the two candidates where Trump was showing a much more significant lead at the same stage in the 2016 cycle. Um, and then not a Rust Belt state, but Minnesota is one that unless it's an anomaly, there's been a recent poll that shows that a, a double digit Biden lead from earlier in the summer is now basically neck and neck between the two candidates. Um, so something's going on in Minnesota that is making people more willing potentially to vote for Trump. I think that's super important to watch. So Stephanie, I mean, clearly Trump will need to win some of the states that are currently leaning toward Biden. Um, to reach the electoral votes he needs to to take a second term. But he can't afford to lose some of the states that he won in 2016 and still win the White House, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think he could lose. Uh, there's a scenario where he loses Wisconsin, he loses Michigan, he loses Arizona, and he still wins. So he does not need to win all of them. How does, he, how does he win in that scenario? So... Um, he wins Florida. He wins, he wins North Carolina. Yes, he wins Minnesota, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Florida, North Carolina, Iowa, Georgia, Texas, any of these fringe. So Texas is a state I'm watching. I think it's very unlikely to actually not go to Trump. Um, but the polling has been getting tighter as the demographics of the state have shifted. So I think it's it's certainly worth watching how it plays out. Um, but yeah, that's, I mean, the right, interestingly, these two very tiny districts where the states have the ability to split the entire electoral college vote, this Nebraska and Maine second district, I think they are reliably going to cancel each other out. But, um, you know, maybe it could come down to just one of those and what is going on counting votes and as for one electoral college vote, my, would that be crazy if that's what this election down to you know you know how much does COVID-19 um play a part in these battleground states uh, you know Iowa is now a recent hot spot for new 
infections and and who might that play out for i guess better for for biden or or for trump yeah so before all of this covid stuff happened <laughs> it really looked like this was trump's election to lose the economy was up the idea that voters when they're faced with two choices would not choose the person who's you know for the most part made their lives better didn't really make any sense to me so it seemed like a very straightforward trump win so COVID is like the opposite, right? The person who is responsible for making your life worse, it's really, really hard to demonstrate value to voters that way, whereas Biden can just come in and say what he would do, but he doesn't have to prove anything. So just a much easier path for him. The exception here when it comes to COVID is on the economic side, that more voters tend to trust Trump than Biden on economic issues and economic recovery. So if when people are going to the ballot or casting a mail-in vote over the next few weeks, if the decision they're making is not about health and not about the past, but about economic growth in the future, that gives Trump a very good edge uh, on the election on compelling voters to vote for him. I want to go back to the upper Midwest. So I'm, a, I'm, I'm just kind of intrigued by what you're seeing in Minnesota. Um, I, just, uh, I looked up... Uh, Larry Sabato's crystal ball at the University of Virginia. He has Minnesota leans Democratic. That doesn't seem surprising. I mean, I think of it as a fairly reliable Democratic state. Um, but uh, you, you're, I mean, you're seeing that that could change. So would it, would, would it be, would you expect those three upper Midwestern states to vote the same? So Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Michigan. Um, so we know in 2016, Minnesota stayed blue uh, barely. But Wisconsin and Michigan, Trump won both of those. Would, would you expect them to kind of show the same outcome this year? That's a great question. It, it really, to me, depends on the st campaign strategy. So in the event that the Biden campaign is putting equal resources into all three and the Trump campaign is putting equal resources into all three, then it is very reasonable to expect they would move sort of similarly uh, these places are different, though. They have different, um, you know, local business interests and different histories of voting, to your point about Minnesota. It's just, it's really interesting to me, like a sign that something is different now than it's been in the past is that at this same stage in the 2016 cycle, a really good polling showed Trump with only 31% of people saying they were likely to vote for him. And he lost the state, and so that makes sense. But right now, he's pulling at 47% in really, really good polls. <laughs> so he, like, clearly more people are, are, are liking what they've seen of him now than they did before. And whether that is his economic track record or whether it's just about the future and not maybe trusting Biden for uh, on the economic grounds or something else, like clearly there's something about Trump that's re resonating with, with folks in these areas. Well, I mean, these three states have also seen considerable turmoil uh, during the last several months. Uh, George Floyd, uh, that whole thing erupted in Minnesota, and that's where a lot of the violence happened that's, that um, began uh, the, B the BLM protest that then kind of swept the country. We just saw some out some problems in Kenosha, Wisconsin, where both Trump and Biden visited. And um, Michigan, I mean, I can't help but think of those armed uh, militia members at the state capitol, shutting down the state capitol earlier this year. 
Is it possible that it's not the economy, but it's the law and order stuff that is top of mind for voters there? Yeah, that's a great point. I think I, I recently saw a stat about the the campaign ads that the Trump campaign was spending, what themes, what political themes they were spending it on, and uh, criminal justice and law and order were among among the top. So these are all very resonant. The Black Lives Matter movement um, has has certainly changed the political dynamic. Another thing I would say that is really important for these groups of these types of states and how the um, congressional districts are divided um, around in the suburbs, especially, is this whole back to school moment that we're in. So I have a toddler. It is super disruptive not to have schools open here in Washington, D.C. And I know that one of the ways that Republicans have been trying to resonate with voters is sounding way more sympathetic to the working parent than Democratic voters who sound way more sympathetic to, you know, taking precautionary efforts against spreading the virus. And, you know, your political view is going to dictate how you hear those things about nine out of 10 times. Um, but there is recent polling that the predominant, not surprisingly, the predominant burden of homeschooling is falling on women over men. Um, and white women are a group that Trump won in some of these places that he's at risk of not being able to win again based off of trends in 2018. And so doing things that are helpful to women, particularly white women and suburban women, can be really actually impactful and changing dynamics at, at the state electoral college level. I want to shine the light on Arizona for a minute because, you know, it, it's one of the fastest changing states probably on the electoral map. Uh, it's gone from being a Republican stronghold to a, a, real, a true battleground state. Um, how did that happen, Steph? Um, I, I mean, definitely movement out of more liberal states into Arizona. So like Californians going to Arizona, Californians going to Texas. That's a big part of why we start seeing some of these changes uh, happening in these states. And it's interesting, like one of the biggest differences between, I think, a Biden or a Trump win um, is who gets Arizona. I think it's very gettable for both of them uh, for the reasons we talked about. Um, the Senate has been a really big place where this has played out in part because of the legacy by Senator John McCain, uh, who is, was a Republican, but a very, very moderate Republican. That brand of and breed of moderate thinking tends to be something that seems to really resonate with Arizonans. And so you get, you don't get very extreme candidates on either side. And it just seems like there's just been enough of a demographic shift that the moderate Democrats tend to be more likable a lot of the times. Steph, you mentioned earlier uh, that you, uh, you, you kind of think uh, Trump has an edge in Florida and maybe the Biden campaign realizes that and they are putting their resources elsewhere. Um, what else have you noticed in terms of what the campaigns are actually doing based on what, you know, what obviously is their own swing state analysis? For example, there were some reports uh, that Trump, uh, Trump camp Trump's campaign stopped advertising in Michigan for a while for some reason. Maybe they were just running short of money or, but you wonder, like they never really come out and quite tell you exactly what's going on. You have to kind of guess, but is there any chance, for example, the Trump campaign is writing off Michigan? That would be amazing. I'm not convinced of that yet. Um, certainly Wisconsin is lower hanging fruit. There are other, Ohio, Pennsylvania. It, it's probably 
constrained resources more than anything and, and really needing to efficiently spend. Um, and yeah, I mean, if, if, if internal, so internal polling for whatever reason, you know, tends to be better. I actually don't know why <laughs> I've tried to understand why. I mean, polling that the campaigns do that themselves. the campaigns do that the candidates do themselves. Yeah. So stuff that we would never see. Um, and internal polling is a lot of what dictates how they spend their money because it will help them try to get a better picture beyond what we see in these public polls around where things are, are more either at risk or safe. And, you know, I, if there is internal polling that shows that Florida really isn't as strongly Republican, for example, it might make sense to divert money down there because there's so many votes associated with Florida. Um, so that, that could be another reason why you would see some shifting of money around. I was looking at, at some of your research and, and I came across uh, uh, an interesting chart. The number of registered voters who say they will turn out specifically to vote for President Trump versus those who say they will turn out specifically to vote against President Trump are basically even. Um, what do you make of that? Isn't that wild? I mean, this president incites such enthusiasm on both <laughs> ends of the spectrum. Um, it, to me, that is the clear sign that it's really a coin flip. You know, all this, a lot of the coverage that says this is a real that Biden's really ahead, that he's got a strong lead, to me misses the turnout issue because a lot of people will say they'll vote for Biden, but they won't show up if they're not enthusiastic or they'll say they'll vote for Trump and the same. And Trump and Trump's enthusiasm base is really solid. I think that's undisputed. And Biden's is rather weak in terms of the people who are saying they're enthusiastically showing up for Biden. There's not very many. And so having people show up for Biden because they hate Trump is actually a very helpful thing for him. And having that number then for Trump being offset on both sides of the enthusiasm gap means that everything in the middle is really gettable. And another thing that I've been looking at too on the next slide of that, of that research that you were looking at is how many people voted for Trump in 2016 because they because he's not Hillary Clinton and how many people voted for Hillary Clinton because she's not Donald Trump. Those numbers also canceled each other out. There was about 30% of people in both cases said that they were voting for the candidate that they did because they hated the other person so much. And right now the hatred of Biden is really like doesn't even pale in comparison. Trump, the hatred of Trump is almost 3x what the hatred of Biden is. And so I you know which side of that is going to be stronger? Probably not. You know, being really enthusiastic for or against is going to get generally the same number of people to show up. Um, but we, we need to keep seeing then Biden's campaign really playing on this I'm not Donald Trump message, which we saw them do really well at the Democratic debates. Um, and, you know, can they really maintain that when there's real issues that people really need to are asking Biden for answers on like what I need to see from him if he's going to win is a message hammering home how he's not Trump. And then conversely from Trump, what I need to see from him if he's going to win is a message about how I'm going to fix the economy and I'm great and try to get people to show up for him on the positive enthusiasm side. So that's well, kind of, yeah, how I think about the, it. The huge question in, in all of this is what can either candidate do to move the needle during the you know six or seven weeks we have left, 
which gets to uh, the travel that they're doing. I mean, obvious, obviously, neither candidate is doing uh, traditional campaign style events. Does it still matter that the candidates show up in the swing states, um, even if, you know, basically they just they just have a give a speech at the airport or someplace nearby? Like, does that matter? I have no idea. I mean, my gut tells me no, right? Like, my the, none of it makes any sense. However, there's also recent fundraising data out that in the swing districts or swing states where Biden has gone and held virtual events, that he's made a ton of money. And so it's, you know, there's two reasons to do that type of political event. One is the fundraising side and one is the, like, getting people to vote for you side. And in a lot of these swing districts, they're not uber wealthy. So you don't go to them to raise a ton of money. You go to them to get generate a bunch of votes. Um, and so the money game sounds like it's working well, but this like voter interaction thing seems really hard for me to understand. Um, and the people who are prone to like Biden, for example, are not prone to want to be out in public right now. <laughs> so even if he did show up, no one would probably show up to engage with him. So, double so what, what demographic is really critical to, to President Trump right now? I mean, you mentioned white women earlier in the discussion. Is that, is that going to move? Is that going to be sort of, are they the swing demographic, so to speak? That's who I'm watching for sure. I mean, I, I think there's a lot of reason why that demographic is credited with giving Trump the 2016 victory. And, you know, when history looks back on this, I think that is going to be one of the main places where we see a make or break for one of the one candidate or the other. I think there are other demographics that are in transition, um, such as Latino voters who are in younger generations going more towards Biden, older generations more towards Trump, but nothing like this demographic of suburban white women that maybe to Rick to your question earlier that tends to move together. And so maybe we see a few states in these with these women, with women, not these women, I am a woman with women doing these this type of uh, uh, decision making that really could impact the outcome. So Steph, who do you think is going to win? So right now, I would tell you it'd be Trump. I, I, I don't think it's he's got a solid, strong, durable thing where it's not it can't go to Biden and it can't switch. But right now, it really, really seems like he's got just a slight, slight edge over Biden um, because the states where he seems safer are more solid, like have more more electoral college votes and are more solidly like harder for me to see going to Biden than the states right now that are going to Biden, I can more easily convince myself they could swing actually back to Trump. And also because of social desirability bias. So that's that when you call someone up and say, who are you going to vote for? And they tell you who they think you want them to say or who they should say, but not who they're actually thinking. Um, and that was believed in 2016 to have minimized the support for Trump ahead of the election versus when people actually showed up in private and could vote and not feel like they needed to do anything other than be true to themselves. Um, a way to get around that is to ask people who they think someone else is going to vote for. Um, and so if you call them up ahead of time and say, who do you think your neighbor is going to vote for? For example, you can try to filter that out 
And those types of questions show Trump ahead. A slim margin? Yeah, like a few points. And again, it just depends on the, and that's a national, right? That's a national number. And we know national numbers leave out a lot of nuance. Maybe think about that slightly tighter margin than what it's being conveyed as. Yeah, I think Biden's going to win. I think the um, there's a, a clearly an enthusiasm gap, but I think it understates the Democratic turnout. That's my thesis for today. Well, well let's bet a cup of coffee on this, Rick, and come back on. Coffee? Bloody <laughs> Mary, at a minimum. <laughs> I love it. Well, here's the question then for all of us is when will we know who wins? Yeah. <laughs> that was going to be my follow-up question. This could be a very con hotly contested election. So, and, and as we've established here, there are more battleground states perhaps than ever before. So a lot to be decided between now and November 3rd. Stephanie Miller, Managing Director of Fiscal Note Markets. Thanks so much for being with us here on Electionomics and be sure to rate and review what you just heard and saw. And you can follow me at Alexis TV News. And me at Rick J. Newman. Thanks everybody. See you next time.